The views and opinions expressed by contributors on the Spoon River Gothic podcast are their own and do not necessarily reflect the position of the host. Material heard on the Spoon River Gothic podcast is intended for adult listeners. This podcast deals with mature topics that may not be suitable for all listeners. Listener discretion is advised. This is Spoon River Gothic, narrative of a double homicide, part two. Just a jewel, Hazel Brown said of Donna Tompkins, who worked with Brown at the National Bank of Canton. She was so friendly and always there when you needed her. The headline of the Peoria Journal Star on the morning of January 14, 1993 read, Fire fills mother, three-year-old, blaze smoldered for a while before erupting into flames. And beneath a photo of a two-story Victorian ablaze, fire engine pulled up to the curb, the article goes on to state, a Candon woman and her young daughter died together in bed Wednesday morning when a long smoldering fire burst through their apartment. Donna Tompkins, 30, and daughter, Justine, 3, were found in the bedroom of their first floor apartment at 365 South First Avenue, sources said. Positive identification of the deceased will have to be made using dental records and could take several days, said Fulton County Coroner Ronald Pavley. As of Wednesday afternoon, Pavley had yet to determine the cause of their deaths. However, Canton Fire Chief Bob Dorenzi speculated the pair, who lived by themselves, might have never known of the fire. The blaze, whose origins were unknown Wednesday, gutted Tompkins' apartment in the unit above and partially damaged the other two apartments. Dorenzi was unsure of how many residents were at the home at the time of the fire, but all except the woman and the child escaped unharmed. The fire likely began between 6 and 7 a.m. Wednesday, somewhere in Tompkins' bedroom, the chief said. However, the slow-burning blaze did not show itself to alert residents, he said. 
Tompkins, a secretary at the National Bank for about five years, usually arrived at work at 8.30 a.m., said co-worker Brown. When she failed to arrive at work at 9.15 a.m., her boss, David Haynes, phoned her daughter's daycare and found Tompkins had not dropped her off, Brown said. Alarmed, Haynes walked several blocks to Tompkins' apartment, which had yet to show any signs of fire. When he knocked on the door and got no answer, he phoned Canton police from another apartment in the building and asked for an officer to check on Tompkins' apartment. When the officer arrived shortly thereafter, the fire erupted. He came down and then saw flames shooting out of the south side of the building, the location of Tompkins' unit, Dorinzi said. Firefighters arrived shortly after 9.30 a.m. to find a fire roaring through Tompkins' apartment. Though residents of the building fled unscathed, Tompkins and her child were not as fortunate. The fire and smoke were so intense we couldn't get in there, Dorinzi said. And she was just ten feet from the door, her and her little one. By the time firefighters reached the parent bed, both were lifeless, Dorinzi said. The blaze tore upward through the wall of the wood frame building, ripping through the apartment above Tompkins. About 40 firefighters, including help from Copper's Creek Fire Department, needed about one and a half hours to extinguish the fire. Afterward, the porch and doorway of Tompkins' apartment were heavily blackened, as was the window frame of the apartment above. Much of the rest of the building's south exterior was smoke-stained. Early Wednesday afternoon, fire investigators began sorting through rubble in an effort to determine the cause of the blaze, but the cause remained unknown Wednesday night. Assistant Fire Chief Howard Dye said the building had at least one smoke detector, but that unit did not have a battery. The building is owned by Pauline Newcomb, who also resides at the address. Damage was estimated at $40,000, Dye reported. The following day, an obituary for mother and daughter read, Services for Donna and Justine, who were pronounced dead at 10.05 a.m. on Wednesday, January 13th, will be held at 9 a.m. Saturday the 16th at St. Mary's Catholic Church, adding that the pair died of injuries sustained in the fire. The visitation will be from 5 to 8 tonight at Murphy Sedgwick Memorial Hall, the obituary stated, with the resuscitation of the rosary at 7.30. Donna Jean Tompkins was born January 24, 1962 in San Jose, California to Donald J. and Susan Joyce Schultz-Emaguchi. Donna earned her bachelor's degree from Marquette University and was assistant to the trust officer at the Bank of Canton. She was a member of the St. Mary's Catholic Church. She married John R. Tompkins on November 30, 1985 in Canton. He survives. Also surviving are her father of Austin, Texas, two brothers, Joseph E. Amacucci of Bridgeport, Connecticut, and John S. Amacucci of Alpharetta, Georgia, and three sisters, Susan K. Amacucci and Mary E. Amacucci, both of Stanford, Connecticut, and Anne M. Smiley of Torrance, California. Donna was preceded in death by her mother. Justine was born September 4, 1989 in Canton to John R. and Donna J. Amacucci Tompkins. Surviving are her father of Cuba, grandparents Donald Amacucci of Austin, and Ronald Lee and Pat Tompkins of rural Cuba, and great-grandparent Rosalie Tompkins of rural Canton and Lorietta Migda of Canton. Her maternal grandmother preceded her in death. Memorials may be made to Canton YMCA daycare. That Saturday, graveside services were held at 1.30 p.m. at Oak Hill Memorial Park in Sterling, Illinois, the same cemetery where her mother had been buried just a year prior. Donna's family came from east and west and gathered around the Midwestern gravesite alongside Donna's surviving husband, John. Her boss, David Hain, who socialized with the family, expressing the confidence and chumminess he had had with Donna, as her boyfriend at the time of her death, Rod Franciscovic, stood back in awkward silence. Co-workers and friends also attended, 
So many, in fact, that Donna's father was taken aback, having been utterly unaware of his daughter's impact on her new community. Tears were spilled, verses were read, and dirt was thrown. And as Donna's family got into their cars and pulled away from the caskets, now lowered into the cold January ground, David kept his eyes on what he felt to be a new adopted family, per se, as one of Donna's brothers blew David a reaffirming kiss from the window of his car, leaving David to believe he was in the clear. David had been seduced by their posturing, status, and class, a society many in these parts felt utterly out of touch with. And having flown in from the coasts, the family made their way for those few hours down south to Canton, a late sister and daughter's rightly adopted home. There they would meet with investigators, whom they only hoped might possess a fifth of the savvy of the detectives back east. Those whom the family prayed for might find causation as to what in the hell had happened to their Donna Jean just weeks after having spent Christmas together as a family. As they were approaching the outskirts of what many believed to be regular old, small-town America, charming and quaint, a community where Donna had found life, renewed herself again and again, and where she found an abundance of love, and ultimately an untimely and tragic death. Rod had left Sterling without sharing a word with his late lover's kin. He avoided Mr. Amicucci entirely, feeling the matriarch despised him altogether. And Rod would go on to confess to investigators, stating he had made no attempt because Donna's father was a strict Catholic and thought his relationship with his daughter might muddy the waters. But the question remains, among a long list of inquiries, seeing that at the time of Donna's death, of all the men she had been seen, and Rod having been the only practicing Catholic, while her husband John possessed little to no interest in Donna's faith at all, in what way might Rod have muddied the waters of the Amicucci family lineage? And how had Rod felt about this judgment deep within? How had he reacted when Donna had spoken of him to this concern of her father's? And most importantly, for a woman who had professed to have the absolute need to take things with him slowly, and to take any measure to prevent from having another child, why was the question of adding another branch to the Amicucci family even on the table? But more about that later. In honor of Donna, let's take things slow, shall we? All significant investigations go one step at a time, and the facts, like guiding stars, might navigate the course of the inquiry willfully where they might lead. The absolute wrong way to approach a criminal investigation, a science as much as an art, is to align the facts to reach a desired destination. In the immediate days preceding the death of Don and Justine, a task force had organized, made up of agencies from CPD, CFD, FBI, DEA, ISP, and more, a force that had yet to mutter the words, criminal investigation, despite any suspicions which may have been present. As of now, this was simply a fire investigation. And one of the most apparent priorities was to travel to Cuba, Illinois, just a dozen or so miles west of Canton, to a small, mostly rural community where Donna had lived with her husband, John, before separating from him and moving with her daughter, Justine, to Canton, where she embarked on a new life as a single mother. Heading to Cuba, founded in 1837, when the two rival towns of Centerville and Middleton merged, a village with a population bouncing between 14 and 1200, which had been named after the Caribbean island, with a post office that had been in operation since 1837, was the supervising detective assigned to lead up the investigation, Canton Police Sergeant David Ayers, Illinois State Police Special Agent Kenneth Kedzer, Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco, and Firearms Special Investigator Gary Smith, and Illinois State Police Fire Investigator Ted Anderson. 
In the open country, the wind was solid and frigid as it caught speed, whisking across open fields of snow white, with icy crystals glistening in the late afternoon sun. John Tompkins welcomed the officers, and the officers removed their gloves, rubbing their palms together, readying to take a thorough list of notes. John began by essentially stating that the last time he had seen Don and Justine was on Sunday morning, January 10th, just three days before the fire. He said that Donna had brought Justine out to the farm on Saturday afternoon. Justine stayed with him all night, and he took her back on Sunday morning around 8. Not a very long visit, asked an officer. Had morning chores to attend to, said John. You know how it is on the farm. John went on to say he thought he might have woken Donna that Sunday morning, as she looked sleepy, and he thought he remembered she had been wearing a wrinkled dress when she answered the door, and he was surprised she wasn't in her robe. He also said that when he knocked on the door, it didn't take long for Donna to answer. John stated that Donna always kept the door locked. He said he had turned the knob, but the door didn't open. Yes, he confirmed. Yes, he remembered trying the door. It was locked. It was definitely locked. Do you usually walk right in? Asked an investigator. Well, no, I usually have my chore clothes on. And before I left, I gave Justine a kiss and told her I'd see her later. John said the divorce had been close to being finalized, admitting he had put off the divorce, but finally accepted it was over after Donna returned from Connecticut, where she had joined her family for Christmas. John went on to say that he felt farming had taken away from the marriage. I was gone quite a bit, he said, showing sheep and working in the farrowing houses, adding, A friend of mine told me you saw my wife as a woman of the 90s, a career woman. He said, I felt my wife was distracted by her job and too busy to spend time with my daughter, but that overall, my wife had been an alright mother. At this point, investigators noted that John was referring to Donna as my wife and Justine as my daughter, rather than by their names. Sergeant Ayers found this very unusual, possessive to say the least. John admitted he felt he did not care enough about the two, and that when she left, she left things behind that hindered her. Me, the farm, cooking for a man, yard that was too big, and other things that bothered her. John said that she had wanted to get her master's degree, and that she didn't want to have any more children with him, which particularly stung. April 1st, 92 is when we separated, he said. Told her I would let her do her own thing, but she didn't seem to be happy with that. And when asked, John said no, he had not been through Donna's apartment. Only a couple steps inside the front door, he said. John could describe to the investigator some of the furnishings in their locations, part of which she had taken from the house when she left. The day bed she had left in the kitchen, for instance. He said she had lived in the apartment for about three months and that her previous apartment had been on the second floor. She wanted to be on the ground floor with my daughter and all, he said. John added that the apartment was always kept neat, except for what toys were strung out on the floor. John told the investigators that he called the apartment every night he couldn't see Justine, and that Sunday night he had talked to Justine for two or three minutes, sometime between 7 and 8 p.m., and Monday night, sometime between 7.30 and 8, he said he had called and talked to them both. On Tuesday night, he had talked to Donna longer, saying to investigators that he always called from his mom and dad's, or his brother's, or the phone in the shop. That way the call wasn't long distance, he said. On Tuesday night, John said that he talked to Donna twice. The first call was around 7.30, but Donna was giving Justine a bath. He said he called back around 9, 9.30, but Justine was now in bed asleep. John stated that he and his wife talked for four to five minutes. They decided on meeting in Canton the following day, Wednesday the 13th, so that he could take Justine on a father and daughter date to McDonald's for a Big Mac and a Happy Meal and check out the newly installed Playland. John added that he was to call his wife at work to set up a time and that he told her to go in and give the little one a big hug and a kiss, and that he got no indication that anyone else was in the apartment at the time. 
John also told investigators that Donna had been going to bed early lately, ever since she moved out, and that he thought she went to bed around 10, 10.30 instead of the usual 11, 11.30. When asked if he had been seeing anyone, John said he had been dating Sheila Martindale for about two months now. He added that Donna had been seeing a guy named Terry Haynes, but they split because UPS wouldn't give him any time off, he said. John said that Sheila had spent time at the house when Justine was there and that Sheila had been worried and might upset Donna. John also mentioned that after Donna got back from Connecticut, she had been really nice. I wondered if she wanted to put things back together, he said. When I found out my wife and daughter were dead, the first thing that crossed my mind was that she had committed suicide, seeing that I was seeing another girl and all. But he then changed his mind, he claimed, that she was also seeing someone. John admitted that he had been critical of Donna as he didn't think she had been spending enough time with Justin. He said he had tried to talk her into working part-time. He said, My wife grew up different than me and wasn't used to spending so much time with family. He also claimed that Donna was moderate with Justine's discipline, slapping her hand from time to time but never spanking her. John said, I didn't use much discipline on my daughter. I guess you could say I was lax. I just thought she was too darn cute. John told investigators he had found out about the fire the morning it occurred. I was having a good day at Dad's grinding feet, he said. I was driving the tractor around when Mom and Dad came out, and I was wondering what was going on as they were never all together like that. He said they waved him over, and he told him it would be a good day. I could finally see the light at the end of the tunnel, he said, looking off at the horizon, happy to know he'd see his daughter that night. But then Dad said, If you've ever had strength or self-control in your life, now is the time. A terrible thing has happened in Donna's apartment in Canton. Are they okay? In the hospital, I asked him. You need to pick up, said Dad. That's what Mom said. Corner's been called. John then says he fainted to the ground. And then when he awoke, his dad didn't know where to go, saying, Dad made the smart decision and drove us straight to the police department. And there, the chief told us some. And the coroner, Rod Pavley? Yeah, Ron Pavley. He told us more. John said, I assumed my wife and my daughter had gone to bed. Maybe she had pulled out that new sofa bed adding that they both were sound sleepers, real deep. When asked, John said, yeah, Donna occasionally drinks, but only with me, me or family, usually white wine on holidays or a mixed drink or two. But John suggested she'd been working over at the Oaks. Maybe she picked up drinking over there. But no, he said. When he talked to his wife last, he did not think she had been drinking. He said that that night, he had recorded a basketball game on TV, and when he had gotten home from the farm, he watched it, and then some late-night television, and that he had then went to bed. John stated that Donna usually had her keys on a key ring, six to eight, including one for the car, the apartment, and the bank. He adds that the vehicle she had was paid for, and that she was to get it in the settlement. And talking about keys, John added, Hell, I thought they had been torched. And then he commented, But nothing had been finalized, so everything would still be mine. John was referring to the car and anything in the apartment, including the insurance settlement. He said he was responsible for a $10,000 life insurance policy on Justine, and that his attorney Bruce Beale was looking into any bank insurance Donna might have had through work. John then added that Donna had life insurance through Pekin Insurance, and that when the last premium had come in the mail, I took it over to her and reminded her to pay on, but I just found out she couldn't come up with the money before she died, stating $25,000 down the chute. John said, what got me was the alarm. It went off every morning at 6, 6.15, and she'd hit the snooze, and then she'd get up and get ready for work before getting my daughter ready for daycare. 
John then calculated in his head the actual loss of life, in other words, the time of death. I imagine between 6.15 and 9.15 a.m. or so, he said. John then told investigators, I hope their lives were taken as tranquil as possible, adding, I think the smoke or carbon monoxide got them. Mind if I ask where the bodies were found, he asked. And when told, he inquired if they were still in the sleeping position, adding, I hope so. And the biggest positive, according to John, well, at least they never felt burning flesh or fight. Ladies and gentlemen of the jury, let me state the following. Of course, no one can precisely know what John meant by that particular and rather peculiar statement. But consider, at a moment when the inquiry was solely a fire investigation, and cause of death had yet to be determined, well, at least they never felt burning flesh or fight. Flesh or fight. And this is Spoon River Gothic. Gothic is a production of Lone Bird Media in association with CZ Studio and Radio Verite. The show is produced by August Olson, editing, directing, and producing by Corey Zimmerman, audio mastering and engineering by E. Mastered. Research is done by Anne Marie Cannon, Chelsea Mesa, and me, Jinra Illustrisimo. Spoon River Gothic is written and hosted by Corey Zimmerman. You can follow the show at czstudio.works and read the blog at spoonrivergothic.com. Show some love by leaving us a rating or review on Spotify, iHeartRadio, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. And stay tuned for the next episode as we dive deeper into the Donald Bull case. Thank you for listening. This is Spoon River Gothic, narrative of a double homicide.